Dear ones, in prayer you do not conform God's will to your will. That is not the purpose of prayer. The little slogan, prayer changes things. One thing it does not do is change the mind of God. Prayer is intended to conform us to the will of God and not vice versa. It seems that so many today are like Samson who found a Philistine girl that was very pleasing in his sight though she was outside the covenant community. A heathen and a pagan. And he went to his parents and he said, go and get her for me. And so many approach prayer, I think, in the same manner. They have their own preconceived ideas of what simply they want. And they come to God and say, go, get it for me, God. There are over four billion wills. I don't know exactly how many people are on the face of the earth today, but there are over four billion wills being done on earth. And still, there's only one will being done in heaven, the will of God. And that's what makes heaven, heaven, is that only God's will is done there. And the reason that we find so much trouble and so much heartache here upon the earth is because it is not God's will that is done, but everyone else's will that is done. In heaven, everyone waits anxiously upon, uh, on the edge of their seat, as it were, to do the will of God, to do His bidding. But here, it seems as though you've got to shake people out of their seats to get the will of God done, to send them forth with a swift kick, to motivate them so many times. How did the saints there in heaven come to cherish and to love the will of God as they do? Was it because they uh, were by nature less proud than we? Absolutely not. Is it because they are more worthy than we? Certainly not. It is because God sovereignly and graciously gave them a new heart and a will to obey Him. And now, perfected in glory, they only desire to do that will of God. We find in the Scripture that we are all by nature slaves to our own will, the will of sin, to the will of the enemy, until God's Holy Spirit graciously and miraculously and irresistibly draws us unto God. We cannot move one step toward God. We cannot uh, take one particular uh, action on our part, mentally, physically, toward God, because our will is completely disinclined and unable to do so without the Spirit of God giving us the heart 
and the willingness to do so. It is totally of grace that we desire and all Christians, let me make it very clear, regardless of the temptations, regardless of the sin that you face, one thing that is true of all Christians is that in the inner man they desire to do the will of God. It may be that the flesh is indeed weak, but they desire to do what God wants them to do. They may stumble around and trip and fall and have to pick themselves up seven times over and over again. But they desire to do the will of God and that cannot be said about anyone who is unregenerate. And that ought to be to you, dear brothers and sisters, a great encouragement and assurance within your own heart. That God has indeed worked that marvelous work of grace within you that you do desire to do the will of God. And at the same time, if there is anyone present, child or adult, who does not desire to do the will of God, that ought to bring about the greatest amount of fear within your heart. For it's an indication that if you do not desire God's will, you do not belong to Him. He has indeed not given you that heart. And you should seek Him Pray that God would give you that heart. <clears throat> now, as we consider what it means for God's children to pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, let us note that God's Word carefully distinguishes between two aspects of God's will. Distinguishes between God's revealed will and God's secret will. Now, in my Arminian days, I had uh, a twofold understanding of God's will also, but I did not understand what the Scripture uh, uh, taught. But the two aspects of the will of God that I understood them to be were, were these. Uh, God's permissive will and God's perfect will. Perhaps some of you from your days can remember those distinctions as well. Uh, those are unbiblical distinctions. That is uh, uh, to imply that God has a perfect will and God has a less perfect will. And they derive this uh, to a certain extent from a passage like we read just before our time for prayer. Romans chapter 12, where it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Well, if you marry the wrong person, even though that person might be a Christian, according to this particular doctrine. Uh, you, you may marry the, the, uh, the right person, in which case that's the perfect will of God, but you might also marry someone who was a Christian but was not exactly the right person that God intended, in which case that might simply be the good will of God or the, or the more acceptable will of God. But that's not what God's Word is teaching at all. 
This word that we find in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, is saying that God's will is good, God's will is acceptable, and it is perfect. There's not a distinction of degrees within the will of God, nor are we to understand that certain things simply occur by God's mere permission. As if these matters, many things in the world, are out of God's control. That God's hands are, as it were, simply tied behind His back and He cannot act to stop things. That He must respect the will of man to the exclusion of exercising His own will in the earth. That's blasphemous to speak of God being tied and His will being contingent upon our will. God does whatever He desires in heaven and upon earth. And all things occur as we will see by not simply His permission, but by His decree. We read also this Lord's Day from Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, and this is where we find the biblical distinction with regard to the will of God. Deuteronomy 29, 29, coming at the very end of that chapter where God lays out the covenant blessings and curses for His people. If they obey Him, they can expect blessings. If they disobey Him, they can expect His judgment to fall upon them. In verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The secret things are the secret will of God, and the revealed things, or the revealed will of God, these are the biblical categories that we find with regard to God's will. We're going to briefly look at the distinction between these two aspects of God's will and try and show that they are indeed, even though they are different, they are not contradictory uh, to one another. There's not a contradiction within God's nature as to his will, what he decrees as opposed to what he reveals from his word. Well, first of all, let me make this distinction between the revealed will and the secret will of God. God's revealed will is all that he has made known to us in his word. Now, in the Word of God and during biblical times, there were other means by which God made His will known to people. He spoke directly to some people. He revealed Himself through dreams, through visions, through various miraculous gifts, speaking in tongues, prophecy, these types of things, made known the will of God, the revealed will of God. Now... We have all of God's will, all of God's prophetic word given to us, complete, not in part as people throughout the Bible had it revealed to them, a piece here, a piece there, trying to put the whole puzzle together, but we have the whole puzzle. 
We have all that God wants us to know in His Word. It is complete. When it speaks of in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that all of these things, that God's knowledge and prophecy and tongues, they will all come to an end when, when the perfect, the, the, the complete thing has come. When God has finally revealed and given to us His whole word, His, the whole counsel of God. So we're not to expect, therefore, any new revelations, nor any new prophecies. Otherwise, we would have to apply the same criteria that was applied to the prophets of old, that they could never speak anything false when speaking on behalf of God. That everything they said would be in accordance with God's word and predictions they made would all come to pass exactly and precisely as they had predicted. And especially, I don't think we'd have too many running around if we applied the penalty for false prophets, which was death. Now, I don't know anybody who wants to stand under that kind of uh, standard today. But that was God's standard. And God could speak infallibly through animals, as he did Balaam's donkey. Or he could speak through unbelievers like Balaam himself or Saul, King Saul. Or he could speak infallibly through his own prophets, those who were called to prophesy. And so the argument that people would offer today, that they're simply fallible human beings, they're weak and frail, of course they're going to make mistakes. Well, that is not true. Uh, that shows uh, that God himself is not capable of using the instrument and, and using that instrument in such a way that he, he cannot speak the truth. God's not limited to the instrument. He will always, when he uses an instrument, speak the truth. That's God's revealed will. We find that we are to follow that. Jesus said in Matthew 4.4, 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Every word. Not 90% of it. A whole counsel of God, Old and New Testament. But God's secret will, on the contrary, dear ones, is all that God sovereignly brings to pass in heaven and upon earth according to his immutable purpose and decree. Whatever happens in history whether it is a, a seeming detail of history, whether it's a major event in history, everything that happens is according to God's secret will. Ephesians 1.11 says, We have been predestined according to his purpose. Notice what it says. Who works all things after the counsel of his will. Not most things, but all things. In God's secret will, God not only foreordains the ends, but he foreordains the means to those ends. He not only ordains who would come to Christ and savingly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but he ordains every single detail 
and the trip that all of us have taken in our pilgrimage through our, through our spiritual walk to come to Christ. He has ordained every single thing in our life to bring us to that place to know Jesus Christ. And dear ones, if you know Jesus Christ, I pray that you can look back on your life regardless of what you've gone through and say, without a shadow of a doubt, without any mental reservation, it's worth it all to know God, to know Jesus Christ. God foreordained it all. Another distinction, God's revealed will, we can know as the Spirit of God enlightens our minds to understand the Scripture. We can know the revealed will of God. Ephesians 5.17 states, So then don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What will is he referring to? Well, he's referring to God's revealed will. We can understand. And if we don't understand it to that degree, to that degree we are foolish of God's will. And we must strive, not simply throw up our hands and say, well, I simply can't understand a passage, but pray, study, seek God to understand His Word. God didn't make all of His Word the most easy thing to understand. Now, there are portions of it that even a child can understand. But there are portions that are uh, indeed very difficult. It's uh, interesting that even an apostle like Peter says, there are certain things that Paul has written that are indeed difficult to understand. So do not become discouraged because you cannot understand God's revealed will in all of its totality. Be a faithful student and a workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. See, that's more of an incentive for us to, to dig, to get on the, put on the mining clothes, you know, the hard hat with the light and go in with the pick and the shovel to do some serious uh, excavate, excavating of the truths of God's word. But on the other hand, God's secret will, contrary to the revealed will of God, cannot be known to us until it actually happens. We might be 99% sure that something is going to happen, but we cannot know for sure unless God has revealed it in His Word. And so God's secret will is something we cannot know in advance until it actually occurs. And I find many, many times, and we'll talk about this in a moment, many people are trying to determine God's will based on a secret will. You can't know God's will based on a secret will or what you presume God might do. You know God's will based on what He has revealed. Proverbs 16.33, the Lord says about even something as seemingly insignificant, but uh, this is uh, uh, certainly not an insignificant uh, uh, event, but some people consider it to be very insignificant. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. 
Someone would simply say, you mean every toss of the dice is determined by God? It's a decision made by God? The Word of God teaches so. Every seemingly act of chance is not chance at all. But God determining that. The hairs of your head are all numbered, we read from Luke chapter 12. Something very seemingly insignificant. A sparrow falls to the ground, but not apart from the will of your Father. Another distinction, God's revealed will in Scripture can indeed be broken. God's revealed will in Scripture can be broken. Take the commandment in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Take the commandment, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery, bear false witness, or covet. Are those commandments, those revealed, uh, those being the revealed will of God, are those ever broken? Time and time again, God's revealed will can be broken. But on the other hand, God's secret will cannot be broken. God's secret will cannot be broken in providence. We find in Romans 9.19, one of the objections that is brought when talking about God's unconditional and divine and sovereign election, who resists His will? Who resists His will? No one can resist the will of God from the aspect of God's sovereign will because all things are decreed by God from the foundations before the foundations of the earth. And then finally, one other distinction between God's revealed will and God's secret will, and I don't want to belabor the point here, but I do think that it's important to make these distinctions. God's revealed will is without, without sin. What God commands us to do is without sin. What God forbids us to do is absolutely righteous. We are to obey it. All that God has given to us in His Holy Word, there's much sin and in, in, uh, much sin accounted and enumerated in the Word of God. But that's not intended for us to imitate, but rather for us to, to not imitate. Uh, rather for us to follow, not in the paths of those who are wicked, but in the paths of those who are righteous. And so, God's revealed will is without sin or error. In Psalm 119.51, all His commandments are truth. But on the other hand, God's secret will decrees even sin for God's own holy purposes. God's secret will decrees sin for His own holy and wise purposes but not so that God is the author of sin. No one will be able to accuse God on that final day because He has decreed sin 
be able to point their finger at God and say, I'm not responsible for the sin I've committed. God will hold every man accountable for his own sin because in God's decree, and this is somewhat the mystery of this particular issue, God decrees all things, but he forces no man to sin. He does not hold their arm behind uh, the back of a righteous man and say, you will sin whether you like it or not. But each man sins because of his own desire to sin. But at the same time, everything is decreed. And many, many people in Arminianism, in Arminian churches, stumble over that particular truth because they cannot reconcile those two truths in Scripture. And yet, there's no doubt in my mind that they are reconcilable truths in the mind of God because I am weak and frail and feeble in my mind and limited in my knowledge is not to impute the same kind of weaknesses to the Almighty because he's incomprehensible. I can understand and apprehend many things about what God has revealed concerning himself, but I cannot comprehend God. I cannot know him completely and totally. What I do know about him and what, how he has revealed himself is true and accurate. But to understand and know God would be to be God. And the finite cannot comprehend, comprehend the infinite. Any more than you can pour the ocean into a shell and hope to contain the whole ocean. Well, here, let me just pause. This is not intended simply to be a, a, a lesson in theology on the will of God. We will be getting to uh, how this really affects this petition. But again, this background information, I think, is absolutely essential to understanding uh, this petition. The question comes up again, how can God decree what is contrary to his revealed will? How can God decree sin in a secret will when it is contrary to his revealed will? I won't uh, uh, even presume to be able to answer that question in a way that uh, uh, will uh, satisfy all of the questions we have. But let me share this with you and hopefully you would find this to be helpful uh, nevertheless. There is no contradiction in the nature of God. God's revealed will reveals his own holy nature. God's secret will is an application, if you will, of his revealed will to history and time. God's holy nature does not change, but God applies in time, that standard of his revealed will through his secret will and what he has decreed. By that I mean God is absolutely just as to his nature, absolutely righteous, but he's also gracious 
He's long-suffering and kind. Those characteristics are revelations of his will that he has shown us in, his, in the scripture. But we see the demonstration of his justice and of his grace all throughout history through his secret will. When men raise their fists in God's face, God judges them. And yet God takes sinful, wicked enemies and through his grace humbles them and makes them his own people. That's an application of that standard of his revealed will to history. Why does God permit sin? Or why did God decree sin? Why is that a part of his plan? Not as the Arminians teach, that he had to allow men the freedom of choice, but rather to but rather to reveal the glory of His grace and the glory of His justice in punishing sin as well as the glory of His grace in saving people who don't deserve anything from Him but hell. We understand then, dear ones, the secret will of God by His revealed will. Some people are trying to interpret the revealed will of God by the secret will of God, by what happens in history, by events all around them. But we don't understand the secret will of God except by His revealed will. That's the interpreter. That's the divine commentary on what's happening every day in your life is to go to the objective standard of the Word of God to understand what is God doing in my life. I don't feel like God loves me. I don't feel like God cares about what happens in my life. Because this happened, and this happened, and this happened. Well, are we going to thrust our particular interpretation of providence onto, the, will of, uh, onto the, the Word of God? Are we going to take the Word of God to interpret what is happening to us? See, that is God's commentary. And everything that happens to you, dear ones, God is teaching you two things. Everything that happens to you in your life, God is teaching you two things. He's teaching you your own insufficiency. And at the same time, He's teaching you His all-sufficiency. Your insufficiency that you cannot handle life. You'll make a mess of it every time. But showing the glory of His power and His grace that only He has the answers and only he has the power and the wisdom so that you will turn to him when you first come to this petition then and you pray thy will be done you fervently 
plead with God that his revealed will in scripture would be obeyed by you, by your family, by your church, by your nation, by the world. You're praying that all men, including yourself, would love and cherish and desire more than life itself the will of God as he has revealed himself in his word. This petition specifically prays that God's revealed will would be done on earth as God's revealed will is done in heaven. For as we begin to look at God's secret will, again, who resists his will? So this specifically pertains to God's revealed will. And that it would be so obeyed that increasingly people would, until the coming of Christ, continue to grow in God's will until that final time, as we've already spoken of, until we will desire and all who are in heaven will revel in doing the will of God without any encumbrances, without any hindrances at all. That indeed, dear ones, is heaven. Not to have that battle going on that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7, but to be free of that. What a glorious day that will be. So then if you are to pray this petition sincerely, you must be, as we've already said, a, a serious student of God's word always praying for the Holy Spirit to grant you insight and wisdom as to how to apply the Word of God to every area of your life. You must very sincerely consider, acknowledge this particular truth that Paul gives in 2 Timothy chapter 3 about the Scripture. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so, as you pray this prayer, you're praying in effect, God, grant me the wisdom to know your word, to know you. As you pray this petition, you're praying, God, make me a diligent student. If I don't desire to spend time reading the word daily, God, give me that earnest, sincere desire so that if I miss reading the word of God, maybe I was unconscious all day long. So that if I miss reading God's word, I will realize what a uh, travesty, how, how terrible that I was unable to spend time in his word. Rather than saying, considering it a burden, as many people do, to have to read God's word, to be structured in their life in that way. What we're saying is that the scripture... Even as God 
is, even as Jesus is, even as the Holy Spirit is, the Scripture is sufficient. It is sufficient. Which again brings us to another issue. And that is the question of how is God's revealed will made known to us. We've already spoken of the fact that God does no longer reveal his will by dreams and visions and prophecies and tongues. And and we believe that the foundation of the church being Christ, uh, the chief cornerstone, and the apostles and prophets being the other part of that foundation has already been laid and the structure, the stones, the living stones, all of you and all of the, the visible or the invisible church has been added to that structure throughout the ages. So that foundation cannot be relayed. That of apostles and prophets cannot continue their ministry any more than the ministry of Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection cannot continue. They're unique. So we have dealt with that particular objection. But for those who do not believe that God is continuing to give revelation, however, we find ourselves oftentimes leaning very heavily upon impulses, upon divine intimations, feelings, we believe God is directing us in this direction based upon a certain feeling that we have or an impulse that we have. The question is, dear ones, can we say with any kind of confidence that God reveals himself in that way any more than he reveals himself by revelation or tongues or prophecy? Is that an infallible Indication of God's will, a feeling that I have, an impulse? Absolutely not. The only infallible rule of faith in life is the Word of God. As we apply the Word of God to every area of life through the Spirit, John Murray in talking about this very issue, has made this particular statement a couple sentences, but listen closely. Very profound, I think. If our criterion or standard of judgment is wrong, then we are deprived of the means whereby our wrong may be corrected. If our standard of judgment is our feelings, then we have deprived ourselves of right judgment because we have started off with the wrong standard. It is one thing, he says, to come short in the application of a right rule, but is another to have the wrong rule altogether, the wrong standard. It is one thing to limp in the right way or the right path to limp down that path but it's another thing to run in the wrong way there's much much zeal today people are running all kinds of places but they're not running according to the knowledge of God but according to their experiences according to providence as they interpret it according to their feelings according to a lot of things 
and not according to the revealed will of God. He says, in the one case, we have a basis for progress, even if we're limping, because we're going the right path. But in the other, we have not even started to make progress. Very wise words, I think, that we should pay uh, and give careful heed to. This has to do with the whole issue of fleeces. <laughs> Laying out fleeces before God. Gideon did so, you recall. God was merciful in, in, uh, in considering his feeble condition and answered his prayer. But Gideon knew what the will of God was. God had revealed his will, but Gideon wanted more testimony, more confirmation. God, just just uh, make the fleece dry and the ground around it wet, and then make the fleece wet and the ground around it dry. Then I'll know. Your word isn't sufficient. See, that's what we're saying. It's not enough, God, that you have revealed your truth in the Scripture. I need more evidence and testimony. Uh, certainly a slap in the face of God. We ought not to determine or seek to know the will of God by laying down fleeces before God, but by a spirit-informed mind and intelligence in reading the Word of God and asking God to grant us wisdom in applying His principles to every situation. See, many times closed doors do not mean that we are not to continue knocking, that we're not to continue to pursue that course of action. Many times the door can be closed in God's providence, but God would expect us to keep on knocking, to seek that door, to see that that door is opened. What if the apostles had said in Acts 5, the door is closed proclaiming the gospel in Jerusalem because the, the leaders have forbidden us from preaching in the name of Christ. There's a closed door there. What would have been accomplished in God's will? But they knew God's revealed will was they are to obey God. And God had said, Christ has said, that they were to teach all things beginning in Jerusalem and going forth from that point on to all the ends of the earth. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And so even a closed door, we cannot interpret those indications in God's providence as necessarily determining the will of God. But we go to the Word of God again. Another thing that this petition does imply is that you are to pray that thy will be done and that in so doing, you must be willing to sacrifice your will, your dreams, your ambitions. You must be willing to deny yourself to take up the cross of Christ and to follow Him. You must be willing to sacrifice and crucify your own passions to follow him. It also implies that God is not going to reveal and give you insight concerning his will in an area that you are asking him to give you insight from his word concerning this area. 
until you are already doing his will in many other areas which you know that you're commanded to do and are not doing. God will not continue to give further illumination and insight into his will if you're not willing to obey him right now. If you're not willing to count the cost right now. John 7:17, 7, Jesus made it very clear concerning those who wanted to know whether his teaching was from God or whether it was from man. Is this the will of God or is this the will of man? He says, if any man wants to do, not simply to know God's will, but to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Are you willing to do the will of God? Are you doing the will of God now in in the areas you know he has commanded you to? Focus on that. Spend time in those areas, even now. That's not easy. And yet that's what God calls us to do by His grace and by the power of His Spirit. And yet it is so pleasing to the Father when we begin to sacrifice our will to do the will of God. Do you think God was pleased when Abraham was willing to sacrifice his own son, Isaac, because God had revealed to him that that was his will? Do you think God found pleasure in being willing, Abraham being willing to give his own son the promised one, the one through whom God said he would bless the nations, the one for whom he had waited years for God to fulfill And now God calls him to offer this son as a sacrifice. But even in that, Abraham did not waver in unbelief, but obeyed God. It found great pleasure in the eyes of God. How is the will of God, dear ones, done in heaven? Let me give you just a few ways in which the will of God is done in heaven so that we know how we're to do God's will here upon the earth. God's will is performed unwaveringly in heaven. There's no discussion. There's no need for prodding to get the angels to move out and to do the will of God. There's an unwavering commitment to do God's will. And so it should be that we pray that that would be the case in our own lives. God's will in heaven is done completely. To the angels, every command of God has the same authority attached to it. Not to just the big commands, but every command. The details of Scripture are as important as the seeming important parts because the authority of God stands behind it. Dear ones, if the mere eating of a piece of fruit could condemn the whole human race to sin and death, don't let anyone ever convince you that something small and seemingly insignificant is insignificant to God. Every area 
is important. And the angels consider every command to be important to God. God's will in heaven is done willingly. They do God's will without murmuring and complaining. In fact, they love to be employed in God's service. It is their joy and their greatest delight to obey God. In fact, the harps, which we find in Revelation that they are playing, signify their joy in doing the will of God. Their joy in doing the will of God. It's not the attitude, no, I did God's will yesterday, it's your turn to do God's will. It's not that kind of attitude at all, but willingly, freely. No, no coercion. The will of God is done fervently in heaven, dear ones. They are not apathetic and lukewarm or indifferent in doing God's will. They do it with an enthusiasm and a zeal because it is the will of God. They, they, they bring forth their best affections, the strongest desires to do the will of God. The seraphim. We find in Scripture a category of angelic beings in heaven. The seraphim means to burn. The word means to burn. You see, the angels burn with a passion and a desire to do God's will. And the will of God is, is performed swiftly in heaven. I don't know about you, but I get tired myself as a parent of having to remind my children time and time again that this needs to be done. Remember I told you this five minutes ago? Or I remember I told you five minutes ago, which was the second time that I told you that that needed to be done. But the will of God in heaven is performed swiftly. You notice that the cherubim are spoken of having wings. Wings are used to swiftly do the will of God, to perform all of God's bidding. No excuses, no procrastination. God has commanded it. Let's get it done. And finally, the will of God in heaven is performed constantly. The angels in heaven never grow weary in doing what God commands. They never say, I've had enough of doing God's will. In fact, it says they serve him day and night, constantly. And that's how, beloved, we are to perform God's will. That's how we are to pray that God's will would be performed upon earth. With that attitude in my own life and in my family, in my church, and then in the, our nation and finally in the world. Though I've already said that I believe this petition specifically pertains to the revealed will of God, praying that God's revealed will would be done upon earth as it's done in heaven, let me just simply say, with regard to God's secret will, I think that we can certainly uh, make as well an application uh, to that as well. That when we pray, Thy will be done, that we would pray with regard to God's secret will, that we would humbly and patiently submit to everything God brings into our life. The 
things that have happened to us in the past that we continue to be troubled over that seem to, at this point, not have rhyme nor reason and we cannot figure it out in our own wisdom to patiently submit to the will of God that He is infinitely wiser than we and that He loves us He cares for us, that He has a plan in His good providence. Murmuring and complaining, dear ones, spring from two root sins. Pride and unbelief. Pride, I don't deserve this, God! What were you doing, God? Were you sleeping when this happened to me? How could you possibly allow this to happen? In fact, what we're saying, God, you're unjust and you're unfair. And from unbelief, murmuring and complaining against God's good providence spring as well, Unbelief. God, you really do not love me as you say you do. I don't believe you. This does not indicate a loving God. What have we done? We've allowed the secret will of God to interpret the revealed will of God rather than allowing the revealed will of God to interpret the secret will of God. A man may pray, Thy will be done, with defeated resignation, kind of fatalistic attitude of one uh, who would say, Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. Not because he wants God's will. Not because he desires God's will, but because he's come to the point where he feels that it's absolutely useless to fight against God. Well, that's not praying, and that's not the attitude that God calls us to have in praying, Thy will be done as it is on earth as it is in heaven. Not defeated resignation, but rather with joyful delight. A man may pray, Thy will be done with bitter resentment as well. Because God is his enemy, and yet an enemy so strong that he cannot be resisted. Instead of Julian the apostate, the emperor that followed Constantine after Constantine had made Christianity a legal religion and exalted it uh, within the empire. Immediately upon the heels of Constantine came one who tried to do completely the opposite, to destroy Christianity. That was Julian. And yet, at the conclusion of his life, he lay on a battlefield, mortally wounded, and he scooped up his own blood 
and threw it up in the air and cried out, You have conquered, O man of Galilee. Bitter resentment. One of an enemy. That's not praying, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then a man may pray, Thy will be done, in order that his own selfish will might be done. I'll do you a favor, God, if you'll do me a favor. I'll obey you if you will grant me my request. And so we bargain with God. Well, God is not a bargaining God. When we obey Him, we obey Him because it is our duty. We obey Him because we love Him. You know, dear ones, as I conclude, I would have you remember that Jesus Christ had to wrestle with his whole idea of God's will himself. When he was in the garden of Gethsemane, and he was in his own human mind wrestling with what lay before him, And even in his divine person, the anguish and suffering of being separated from his father. And again, that's one of those mysteries I do not pretend to be able to explain how God, the son, could be separated from God, the father. But nevertheless, wrestling with those, the inner turmoil about what he was to face. And none of us, no matter what we've gone through, can possibly understand what Christ was going through at that point in time. Nothing that we will ever go through will compare with what Christ went through on that dreaded night as he faced the physical maiming and piercing of his body the whipping, the, the assaults of fists, the blasphemous remarks and names, the humiliation, and to an infinitely greater degree, bearing the very wrath of God for unworthy individuals like you and me. And yet Christ in that desperate situation left for us a pattern to follow. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but thine. But thine. What you have revealed should happen, O God. Let it be done. So, dear ones, as those who will face many, many trials and temptations and problems in this life, 
God calls us as we pray and call out to Him to continually to beseech Him. Thy will be done. Let us act only and always in accordance with Your will, not according to our feelings, not according to the counsel of the experts, not according to any other kind of human standard, but let us only and always do the will of God according to what He has revealed in the Holy Scriptures. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.